Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Garland Pepper Presents podcast. Today, my guest is Laura Wall, and she's with um, Hearts of Healing. She's the founder of Hearts of Healing. Um, she is a healer, and uh, we met on Clubhouse, and I have really enjoyed the time that I've spent with Laura. The The words she speaks, the perspective that she brings to a room, uh, her ability to calm people when they are in uh, you know, a little bit shallow waters or deep waters, I guess. Um, and I've just noticed that. Um, and we were in a room the other day called the Pronoia Room, and she had heard that I was a podcaster, and then and I didn't realize that she was a podcaster. And so uh, we we're doing this. And, and Laura, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, coming on the Garland Pepper Presents podcast, and. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, first of all, I'm delighted to be here. And spoiler, we're all podcasters. <laughs> um, I believe that we all have a song that our heart is singing and that we're all individual broadcasters. Uh, we're, we're radio stations and we're singing that song out through our vibration, out through our heart. And that's what helps us connect with the right people at the right time, the right partners, the right friends, the right love interests. And so that's uh, part of who I am is a believer in the power of love. I think it's the most unifying universal force on the earth. Um, my path to where I am now is checkered and full of dips and valleys and crying and <laughs> deep uh, snotty nose crying healing, as well as some really incredible um, peaks, including being a professional surfing model in 2018 nice. i'm sorry what? international surfing model at the ripe old age of 50 which was something i had put on a wish list many years ago so i'm absolutely a manifester and i am i'm a lot of things and it's it's weird to speak to all these roles because they feel like boxes right and so yeah. i'm like I'm not really in those boxes, but um, now I kind of think of them more like I have this huge pantry of ingredients. So I'm a, right. I'm a creative and I'm an artist and I'm a speaker and I'm a brainstormer and I'm an Aries and I'm a wife. And so for different roles that I get to play, I go to that pantry and I'm like, hmm, which ingredients should I bring out today? Should I bring out my surfer self who's fearless in four feet of water? Um, should I bring out my compassionate, loving self who is able to hold people in a very special space where they are able to be seen and be heard and feel the effects of unconditional love coming through me? Um, do I need to bring out my fierce warrior self, my goddess self, the one that likes to have uh, viewers, I mean, listeners, you can't see me today, but I've got my wild hair going. I've got some tinsel in there. I just found out I could put tinsel on my hair at the ripe old age of 54, and I'm going to wear it every year until I get tired of it. <laughs> that could be, I don't know, 75, 80, and then I'll figure out some other way to make my hair crazy. Um, so yeah, I, I realize now that I'm so many things and the different roles and titles are just things that I play at. So let's talk about those boxes. Let's uh, let's start where we first start stacking our boxes, and uh, that that's at the beginning. And and I believe even if we shift our lives significantly, um, that those initial boxes 
um, really have an interplay as to how we actually interact with the world. So I like people's, uh, uh, you know, origination story. And, and I know some people shy away from them because there are a lot of challenging childhoods. But where did you grow up? And who I did? grew up in the weird capital of the United States, Austin, Texas. I am a <laughs> unicorn. Uh, because I'm a native. And when I go back there, I recently stood up at a poetry speaking gig. And everyone who got up there before me, they were all from California, Chicago. And I got up and I said, I want you to lean in. I want you to take pictures because I'm something you've probably not seen or heard of. I'm a native Austinite. And the, the whole crowd was like, oh! and I was like, really? yeah, exactly. Really? So I'm very fortunate to have that beautiful place, that amazing place of creativity and wonder as my birthplace. And I was uh, born to Molly and Wally Eccles. And as we grew up, we had Collies. And I'm very thankful not to be named Polly because my dad has a weird sense of humor. <laughs> Although I guess I would have rolled with it. <laughs> and I am one of three kids. My older sister, her name is Eve, and my younger sister, her name is Kate. My older sister's two and a half years older than I am, and my younger sister is eight years my junior. And my parents, in their esteemed wisdom, decided the best thing, since we're having girls, is to just give them a simple first name, nothing that could be made into a nickname, no middle name, because they're going to be plagued with the Catherine, also known as Kathy or Katie, and then the middle name is Anne, and then the maiden name, and then the married name. So what happened? We all wanted middle names. <laughs> we all wanted to change our names. So part of my childhood was playing around with the spelling of my name, adopting a middle name, which later actually became my younger sister's name. So my parents came to me and asked if they could take my uh, adopted middle name of Kate and give it to my sister, which kind of bonded us. My older sister was um, five years old, and I was about two and a half when she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Mm. This is 1970, so they did not have a lot of tests, so they did what they could do, which was they went in to remove the tumor, which was sitting on her pituitary gland, which kind of wrecked her operating system, so to speak, mm. and turned my five-year-old sister into a baby again for my parents. And oh. so through the through the eyes of a child, all I knew was my sister was sick. My sister was in the hospital. I was spending a lot of times with my grandparents. And looking back, the blessing was I had really great surrogate parents through my grandparents. I had a very close relationship with both of them until the end of their life. Um, I was present for my so grandmother they, they the day before in. she died. They stepped they, in. They stepped in and they would come and fetch me quite a bit. So uh, a week for my birthday, two weeks in the summer, another week wow. in, in, you know, at Christmas, they, they spent a lot of time with me and they, they expressed their love in the only way that they knew how, which was giving conditional gifts. And I say conditional and I mean it, <laughs> but so I didn't know that when I was younger. Always a quid pro quo, huh? <laughs> always something for something. As I got older, I realized it was a quid pro quo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they, of course, had their ticks and, and difficulties. They were exceptional teachers in their own way. And my parents were doing the very best they could. And um, however, my, my mother, um, who was, I believe, absolutely an empath, a very strong introvert, now with three children, trying to manage all this, part of her coping was alcohol and um, mm -hmm. prescription medication. Oh, and wow. so 
And then my father, who I now understand to be an introvert, and my younger sister's an introvert. So here I was at the time, a pretty strong extrovert mm-hmm. in a world of introverts. And there was a lot of internal pain and a lot of non-healed and a lot of lack of spoken needs and a lack of needs getting fulfilled going on, including my own. And so, so what, what was your role in that? Like, oh, um, how yeah. did you play out in your family dynamic? I was the hero, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was a rescuer. So I spent a lot of time with my younger sister playing <laughs> with her and creating experiences for her. Um, one of my younger memories was um, helping my sister with her therapy. We had people come to our home and do therapy for my sister to reprogram her brain. And part of the job was patterning is what it's called. And um, I was about seven years old. And my job was just to turn her head from side to side on this large patterning table, kind of like a massage table. And there's people coming through our house at all times. So Um, I always felt like I had a role, like I was important to my family and I had to do the things. Um, Yeah. And I was, I was in charge of myself quite a bit. So like going to school, I was in charge of getting, you know, making sure my homework was done, um, you know, making sure I had all my clothes, making sure I had all my things. Now my parents, of course, fed me and why well, I say, of course, my parents were definitely, they're feeding me and clothing me, but I just remember looking back. I feel like I was stepping a lot into adult type behavior, right? Um, like babysitting my younger sister, babysitting both my sisters. Once my older sister was at a stage, she could be babysat. So um, I was kind of the pseudo first child. So I had a mm-hmm. lot of those kind of traditional things, you know, the first one to venture out and to do. That's exactly and- what I was thinking. Like mm-hmm. you took on that t- traditional first child in a family that's overstressed. Yeah. You, you took on, and, and the irony is that you were you know, caring for your, your older sister at times. But, yes. But because My younger of the, sister. Mm-hmm. the amount of work that was going into her. So the, the older sister is the one that, who, who got the, the tumor, mm-hmm. the tumor. Yeah. So. But, but there's some upsides to the story. My parents retaught her everything she had to know. And being a curious little person, I'm in there at the edge of it all. My mom's reteaching my older sister how to read. I was four at the time. I'm sure she was just trying to engage me in the process and keep me busy because a four-year-old's pretty annoying at times. So mm-hmm. I learned to read at age four. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And so in kindergarten, I was going to first grade part-time and I was going to kindergarten part-time and same thing in first grade, I was going to second grade part-time and first grade Mm part-time and come summertime. uh, They called my parents and my mom. I didn't really get a choice in the matter, although I don't know what I would have voted for, but my mother said I was going to skip second grade and go to third grade, which sounds like fun. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Super fun because you're like, yay, I'm really smart. And I get to do different things. Like I didn't want to be bored. But um, it kind of smacked me <laughs> in the face around sixth, seventh grade when everybody's not just a year ahead of you chronologically, but all the biological you know, changes that happen, you yeah. really feel behind. Well, mm-hmm. me, it was biologically equivalent because I flunked first grade or kindergarten. <laughs> oh, my. How did you do that? <laughs> I don't know. It was just behavioral, behavioral issues, I guess. Um so you began as a healer, really. I mean, that it came into your home and it became part of what you do um, emotionally and physically doing the work. I would say in a very unhealthy way. I think yeah. there was a part of me that knew 
and I learned this from, you know, going through therapy, you're plugged into a family system. So you're sensing what they all sense. So my empathy became an empathic skill. You know, I developed my psychic sense because I had to know when mom was going off the rails and when my dad Mm -hmm. was super silent and then, um, and so, yeah, some of those things were, coping mechanisms at the time, but they eventually evolved into unhealthy adult behaviors, including, I call them the P's of of an Al-Anon, perfectionism, Mm -hmm. performance orientation, focus on productivity, and people-pleasing. Lots of P's. Wow. Yeah. But again, I I didn't get, I get it because I didn't get my needs met as a little so kid, what is and I didn't know how to ask for that. What is your natural stress response? Is Nowadays? it fleeing? Fi- well, back then, was it fleeing, fighting, or uh, fawning? So people pleasing would be fawning. A lot mm-hmm. of the list was was that, but then this perfectionism, uh, the overachieving attached to perfectionism would be- That would be kind of a defense. I would say that's that would be kind of fight. Like if someone said I uh-huh. couldn't do something, I'd be like, <laughs> sit back and watch. Yeah. I will. Uh-huh. I will prove you wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hold my chai tea. <laughs> <laughs> Hold my flip-flops on my tie-dye shirt. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. How big is that wave? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, this whole style of response to stress and, um, you know, how we try to please the world and and how it doesn't always work, how we end up breaking ourselves doing so, how we end up losing ourselves because we um, so often acquiesce to the system whatever systems in place, like the family system that you're talking about, we acquiesce our rights to those systems. And then one day wake up and go, well, who am I? I think we form a lesser version of ourselves. We pull out the pieces that are validated externally and we form, we cobble that together Mm -hmm. um, as another self that seems to be the one the world will accept. Right. But, it's it's just pieces it's not very well structured and we've abandoned um and left behind so much more of us mm. that that we didn't know we could bring to the table that we didn't know that would be accepted we didn't know how to bring it to the table so that we would feel right with it and that's really been most of my recent adult life is recognizing those abandoned pieces as being valid and important and sometimes kind of cool. Yeah. So when did you kind of discover that you were operating on some of the same behavior patterns, even though the scene had changed? (laughs) Marriage. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm giving him the silent treatment. Oh my gosh, I've locked myself in the bathroom. I'm hysterical. This feels like this feels like I'm in high school again. This this reminds me of my grandmother. This reminds me of my parents. And I was like, oh, but I was strapped into that roller coaster. I was, you know, I I couldn't, I didn't know how to get out. Yeah. I was just on it. I had some awareness of it, but I had no idea that I had any choice or control Mm -hmm. in changing it. Yeah. So you come up as a, a server. 
a servant, a person who serves others. And at some point, you decide to take care of you. And that looks like setting boundaries. How did that play out? If you've been in this role and now you're telling people, hey, by the way, the bitch is back. You know what I'm saying? Oh, good. You know? We can cuss. Oh, good. I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you're just like saying, okay, I'll, you know, Katie, bar the door. I'm, 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 I'm finding some stuff out about myself and I'm going to live according to those. And I can't continue to do all of this and this. So I need to set some boundaries. How did those play out in your life? Well, it began with depression. Mm-hmm. Um, I've come to recognize in my life that uh, a deep depression, even though it feels so shitty and so cataclysmic, it actually, in the end for me, serves a purpose. And so I was deeply depressed with where I was at. And yet I had the things I thought I wanted. I had um, not my practice husband, but I have my current beloved husband. Um, I had a business that I thought was super fun and I enjoyed it. And, but I had just incredible pressure on me and I was overgiving and not refilling. I was not filling at all. I was just, you know, working myself to death. And I finally kind of snapped and I left. I left everything. I, I was about to kill myself and I had a change, change of heart, change of mind. Very gratefully I did. And I left and for days I couldn't speak. I was, I, I now know I was in a very deeply traumatic, <laughs> triggered, painful, whatever uh, response. And my nervous system was so flipped out. I just couldn't do anything for a little bit, which was good. That's what our nervous system is supposed to do. It's supposed to hit the reboot. And it was really from that, that I started to put together the realization. And again, it was very divine for me. I, I couldn't hear my own voice. I had no desire to talk to anybody, but I needed to, I, I liken it to being a, a chicken without your feathers like you're cold <laughs> and you're nude. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I wanted to be around people, but I didn't want to be around people. So I had mm -hmm. a few, I had a very good confidant, a good friend that sat and listened with me and held space with me very beautifully. And I gave myself time. My husband gave me time and space. And I finally could hear what I consider to be my divine guidance. And I, I, it started to play a game with me. And in this game that I played, it started asking me questions like, what's really important to you? Well, I'd never thought about that. I was so busy doing, I hadn't really prioritized. And from that, it really helped me look at my life very differently. And from that journaling experience, which I now actually use as a process for my clients who are at a transition point, um, it helped me recognize that. I couldn't keep doing what I was doing or I was going to keep getting what I was getting, which was extreme stress, anxiety, depression, and fear running my system. And so I, I did come back and I did start to set some boundaries, um, gave up the business, turned it over to my husband. Thank God. He was so, so amazing in that process. He gave me so much space and, um, 
then shortly after that, I separated from him for a time, which was extremely painful for both of us. But I had to go and find my joy again. It sounds a little cheesy, a little trivial, but I had to stop all the madness, get super, super simple and rebuild that internal well. And again, learn boundaries. And so again, I was back in giving, 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 and I was, I was teaching uh, Zumba fitness for uh, my church in Austin. That's where I was living here in San Angelo. And I ran to my other home in Austin when I separated from him. And so I was, uh, I started teaching Zumba. It was taking off in the country and my church loved it. And I had so many people come that I had to give two classes back to back. And then I was having people email me and being mad at me that they couldn't come to my free class that I was giving, that I was cutting off the number for their safety. And that's when I was like, hold on, (laughs) I'm offering you something free and you're pissed off with me. And so um, through conversations like that, I started to realize I needed to get stronger. I needed to learn how to say no. I needed to learn how to say no with kindness, but directness. And I'm again, very grateful um, who I married. I married a man who is very, very strong. And he's taught me how to be strong in those ways. He's taught me how to negotiate. He's taught me how to stand up for myself. And I say that like, you know, I'm carrying him around on my back, but he's been definitely um, a teacher for me in a lot of ways, but then you have to go out and do the lessons. So um, in 2021, I had a book published where I wrote a chapter in it and the chapter was called all the bullies I've loved before. Mm. Wow. And in preparation for that chapter, I sat down on, I like to write on my back porch in a hammock, looking over my little pond and everything just flows right in. So I started writing. I thought I'm going to do a little vignette. So I'm going to do three or four stories of people that have been kind of hard on me and what I've learned from them. And I couldn't pick the stories kept coming. So I sat down and I was like, you know what? I need to write down all the bullies I've ever had in my life. And then the list kept going. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this is a lot. Mm -hmm. And so a friend of mine, who's very funny, he's from the South. And he said, if you've been married nine times, it might be you. (laughs) So that's what I was thinking. If there's 27 bullies, it might be me. Right. So it took me. It took me about a week and a half to do the Ho'oponopono prayer and meditation for each and every one of those people and accept my role that I was playing, accept what they offered me to offer forgiveness to them and myself. Because Gary, I'm telling you, I was physically ill. I was a wreck for that week. Like It's almost like I opened a giant box of, of dust and it infected me. And then I had, you know, a cold and a flu and the allergies and pneumonia for a week. It, it felt like that on a, an emotional level and it was good. I needed to clean the that, truth. I needed to clean out that, that box, that closet. The truth um, has a lot of dust on it. I noticed, mm-hmm. you know, but, but I see all those bullies as teachers. And the thing that they taught me was I do have a voice. I do have a choice. Um, I can choose words. I can choose methods. There's a lot of ways to lay down boundaries. They don't always have to be confrontation. And I think that's what makes people afraid of boundaries is they think it's going to have to be this verbal fist fight. And it doesn't have to be that way. So let 
have you had uh, relationships with people who are aggressive and how do you um pull that energy back like if if you respond with a boundary and they come at you like rah like they feel personally attacked and they're you know mm-hmm. defending their space because well your boundary was a gift to them right mm-hmm. the, your lack of boundary was a gift to them in some way the closeness of the relationship usually dictates my response. So for example, I was attacked via text on my last birthday when I was in the midst of a very deep depressive episode. Mm. This family member was not completely aware of that and they attacked me. Mm. And in my depressed state. I was, you know, I was like, I was figuring out who I was going to sign all my belongings to while I died. And then all of a sudden this rah came forward and I responded with a very simple curt text and they kept coming at me another very short, very curt text, like drawing the line in the sand. And I could see it. Um, if it's not someone that I'm very close to, if it's, let's say it's a client <laughs> and they're fussing because they got canceled or rescheduled or whatever. If it's not a close relationship and most of those types of interactions now are digitally, right? So we have some space. It's either a text or it's an email. Um, I put time in place. So if someone's, you know, written me an email at 9 a.m. and they're really pissed off, I'm probably going to give it 24 hours before I reply. Okay. Yeah. Um, I kind of give them strategy and myself yeah. the time out. Like, let's all cool down and let me look at this in the morning and let me come at this and let me see if I can hear more of what's going on for them. And let's let them calm down. Cause I always, when I see something like that, an extreme response, well, I'm now have the, the understanding, the wisdom of it's not all me. <laughs> it's not all me. I've triggered them. I'm the last mm-hmm. thing, but they've got a whole bunch of other things that are going on. It's I can't story. see. Right. Mm-hmm. You, they've got mm-hmm. that story that yeah. all re, all interactions are two stories, you know, coming together. Right. And, and so you have your story. I have my story. When we come together, there may be some mutual understandings, but at some point there will be something where our stories are not in alignment. And mm-hmm. for some people that alignment is almost like identity. And so when you don't align in that way, well, then we cannot, you know, because very tribal, but um, that space that I create, that also shows me something about them. Do they mm-hmm. respect that space? Cause that's also a boundary, right? Do they respect right. that space or do they keep emailing? Do they keep texting? That also tells me how, at what level they are in terms of their own um, emotional growth or healing or, um, do, you know, do they have an ability to self-soothe? Do they have an ability to set a boundary for themselves? Um, and then again, I'm, you know, as I'm observing this, I'm like, Hmm, this appointment was really important to them. I wonder maybe there's some, something major going on in their life. And so, like I said, the longer I wait, I usually can bring in my reason, my compassion, my intuition. I can bring in some other skills on deck to look at that and then see how I want to respond. And I'm trying to respond out of my own boundaries my own timetable, not necessarily people pleasing anymore. Let's say you don't have time on your hands. Like you're in face-to-face situations. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a strategy you use if somebody has kind of 
put you back into your tapes, you know, got your story spinning, got your anger up or whatever. Um, is there a, a method that you use to bring yourself back to a state of calm so that you can, you know, speak clearly? Or is there like a message you say, well, hey, you know what, this has gone out of bounds for me and I really have no good response at this point. So I need to walk away. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you interact uh, in a situation where it is face face? So you don't mm-hmm. have that you know luxury of you know waiting it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a particular memory that's coming to mind where I was going to have a very difficult conversation, a very honest conversation with someone who I valued um, being in partnership with in business. And I went there fully prepared to be very peaceful and harmonious. I stated the intention was to create that towards the end, to create a space where they could express themselves. And yeah, they lost it. (laughs) And they lost it and they attacked me like crazy. And I was kind of outside myself like, oh, you're really calm. And then another part was like, they're attacking you, like do something. And so I, I think at the, at the very end, I think what I said was something like that. It was like, I had hoped that we could come to a conclusion today, but I believe we're going to have to set this aside for another day. And that's something that fascinates me about myself when I'm attacked. I don't curse. Usually I curse later. (laughs) I don't call them names. I usually stand my ground. And I'm usually relatively calm externally with that situation. Um, as soon as I was done, I walked outside and I found that I was, my hands were shaking. Uh-huh. And then I found that I was having like a semi-trauma response. So I knew what to do. I said, okay, this is extra energy. I need to push it into the ground. So I immediately went for a walk. I couldn't self-soothe. I was like, okay, where, where feels safe? What feels good? There's a river in our town. So I was like, I'm going to go down by the river. I did a little bit of that. Okay. I still had some anxiousness. What else do Mm -hmm. I need? Okay. Let me reach out to someone that can hold space to me that can, can listen to me or I can cry. And so I usually cry. I'm, I think crying's great. It's a mm-hmm. great physical release and it brings on a lot of hormones that are soothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if someone's really in my face, I I try my best not to back down per se. Like, mm. like I'll say, you know, this is unacceptable. Um, I don't appreciate how you're speaking to me. We're going to have to talk at another time mm-hmm. and then just try to leave. And again, give it more space. Yeah. I mean, space space is important, um, especially when two stories are coming together. There's time, you know, because if I share my story with you and you have some challenges with that story, you need to play around with it a little while. Like it needs to sit around in your head for a little while and you need to be able to consider yourself, hopefully, and and then the other person's part of the story, you know, so you're 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 that's what that's what the time gives us you know is that ability to say okay well, how am i playing into the story and and really being honest and that's you know digging it up um and then what did i you know how to is there really nothing i can do in this interplay to change mm-hmm. the situation i think when you've got two people who are both listening to understand then anything can be resolved but so, as soon as you have one person who feels misunderstood and does not know how to become understood 
they don't have the communication style or the other person's not actively listening. That's when things really break down. And that's what I'm good at recognizing is even though I might be speaking calmly and explaining my side, if I can see that the other person is feeling really misunderstood and they're hysterical and crying, then it's kind of like, um, they're just in a, they're in an emotional response and I need them to go through that emotional response and work through it. And I don't need to be there. Yeah. And I, I need them to have, have that, whatever that is. Um, and then to be able to come back to, all right, I want to listen to why did you have that emotional response? I want to understand you. Yeah. I was just thinking you can only read one book at a time. <laughs> You know back I mean? to the stories. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, and so if somebody's stuck in their story and you're trying to have an influence or an impact, you're not going to. If you have two hurt people showing up for a meeting and they each are, their whole focus is they hope they're going to be understood. It's going to be a terrible meeting. Yeah. <laughs> you, somebody has to have the ability to listen to the other person's story again to understand them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, that's tough stuff. I've, I've had to, I've had two different friendships in the last three years that have had a break. Um, and one, we have been able to repair it and come to a different understanding and a different way of friendship. And the other one is um, it's in the process. So I never, I never give up on a friendship, like, uh, unless it's a narcissist or an abuser. Um, mm. but again, I always think I'm always changing and growing. They're always changing and growing. So if we can't be friends this year, maybe we could be friends in 10 years. Like we may need to break off our friendship for right now. Cause we're both growing in different directions. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't lose friends. I just, you know, we drift. You know, all my life, that's the way it's been, you know, friends coming and going mm -hmm. and they're not that they're not friends. It's just, they're in a different thing. I'm doing a different thing. And when we come together again, we're friends. Kind of like on your computer, you've got a bazillion programs. You don't open them all at the same time and work on them all at the same time. Right. Like, mm -hmm. like sometimes, sometimes they're inactive, you know, there's friendships that I haven't seen them for years. And then when we get back together, it's just like, boom you're in this vortex and whirlwind and you're so connected and it's so deep and it's so amazing and juicy and wonderful conversations and laughter and it's reactivated, you know, that program's right. open again. Everybody's connected again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you grew up in Austin. You must've gone somewhere because they don't have waves in Austin. <laughs> they don't have them in West Texas either, Gary. Let me tell you, it's, no. it's really uh, funny to tell people when I travel or even here in town in San Angelo that I'm a surfer. They look at you like, did I misunderstand? Like, what do you mean there? Surfing the internet? Um, <laughs> Which is so the most unlike surfing thing you can do on <laughs> earth. The internet is so not surfing. So not surfing. So I... Don't know exactly when the dream of surfing showed up in my psyche. Um, maybe it was because at seven years old, I was a little dancer and I got to hear a Beach Boy song and my mom made me a cardboard surfboard that I used as a little dance prop. Um, that was one of my favorite dances. But I do remember writing down 
when I was in my 40s, I wrote a list of goals, goals and dreams. I went to a Zig Ziglar thing. I went to Success 2000. I got to see some really powerful um, speakers. And I I remember him saying that um, only 2% of people in the world write down their goals. But out of those that do, they achieve greater than 75% of what's on those lists. And I was like, oh, I love writing lists. I can do this. And I just ran across the list after I'd been surfing probably two times. And there were items on the list. One of them said, I wanted to learn how to surf by the age 50. And the other one said, I wanted to go to Costa Rica. Perfect. And I had a list of like 25 things. They were like number 16 and number 20. They weren't even by each other. But apparently my wonderful subconscious got programmed. So it's like, I need both of those. So I have a... Um, a very amazing friend who I admire quite a bit. She puts on different types of women's retreats. And one of them was to Costa Rica. And I'm very fond of delicious food, organic food, healthy food, yummy food. I just like food. And so she was, she talked about this retreat at one of her local women's retreats. And again, my first thought was, there's no way I can go to Costa Rica. That's too much money. That's too far. I don't, I, I don't know how I could do that. And so she started talking about it. She goes, Oh, the food is amazing. I'm like, say more. <laughs> it's organically grown and sustainable. We have a chef on staff and they bring it from the garden. And I'm like, okay. Sounds good. And then she started to describe all the activities and it sounded like adult summer camp. Now right. I'm a camper. I've been to camp one time, horse stepped on my foot and broke it. It was a gymnastics camp. If you were late to something, you would get a spanking. Like it was not a fun oh, camp, good Gary. Times. Yeah. Not good. It was abusive. <laughs> and so when she was like, there's a butterfly garden, there's a waterfall hike, there's zip lining, and there's surf lessons. I'm like, what? She's like, oh, it's so easy to surf in Costa Rica. You'll love it. It's super easy. They make it so fun. And so uh, the year before that, <laughs> I went to uh, California. A girlfriend had a birthday. She wanted to go to California. She wanted us all to get surf lessons. She didn't even know about my dream. And so <clears throat> my first lesson was in Huntington Beach and it was really, really cold. The waves were really, really big. We basically had two super California dudes, like really, really buff and amazing. And the last thing one of them said to me as we're hitting the water is he turned to me and he said, you do know how to swim, don't you? <laughs> Should that not be the first question? <laughs> it should have been the first question. So he, they took us out beyond um, the second break. They put us in what they called the lake and they were, basically setting us up to go into some pretty big waves and we had to paddle. We had to paddle on our own to get into them. They'd give us a little push, but again, my engineering calculations, I was like, okay, if I only have this much gas in my tank and I'm going to spend 95% of it paddling. And then when I get up and then when I fall off, how do I get back to my surfboard? What about the undertow? How do I get back out mm -hmm. to the, where they are? And I thought, it. I, I was like, I I'm going to die. I'm going to uh -huh. die. So I'm not going to do this. So I think I did some riding on my belly type surfing, which was good. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And then I, I do what I always do is I'm like, if this is what you want, then you need to figure out the path to it. So I went home and trained for it. Jumping on the board. I hopping, hopping. I practiced that at home. I trained in the gym. I got super strong legs. I worked on my cardio, got a super strong heart. I took swim lessons. I learned how to paddle well. 
I rented a stand-up paddleboard and worked in the lake and did paddle, even though it's wide, didn't, you know, arm paddling alongside of it. I did all the things to tell my little brain, I can keep you safe and you're not going to die. And then I show up in Costa Rica and the waves are only about three and a half or four feet tall. It's the warmest of water. They break so simply. And these guys are so sweet and they tow you out. They turn you around, they push you. And then they say, get up, get up. So like 99% of the work is done. You just have to be able to balance on a surfboard. So it was quite the contrast and experiences. And that made me fall in love with it. And I was successful and I was very well supported. Uh, Every time you would have a ride or not make the ride, you know, if you made the ride, they were cheering for you, throwing up arms. Yay, yay, way to go. And if you didn't make the ride, as soon as you came back to them, they always would say, Laura, Laura hands here, not here, no rails. Like I'd always grip the side and tip over, or they'd Mm -hmm. show me little, little things that I could adjust. They wouldn't give me a whole nother lesson. And they were always so encouraging. And so uh, I started surfing at the age of 50 and I go to Costa Rica. I try to go as much as I can, but it's, it's about every other year now. And so I'm back in training right now. I'm back in the pool, taking swim lessons again, work Mm -hmm. on my stroke back in the gym. And uh, this summer, I will be back out in the waves taking more lessons because I don't care if I'm always a beginner. With surfing, it's so fun. (laughs) There is nothing in the world, I don't think ever, that will compare to that first ride when all of a sudden you're on the board, you're standing up, and it's moving you. You're being propelled by a magical force. Yes, and it's just like... Oh, it just over overcomes you. I mean, it's just it it is uh, it to this day. I re- I remember that feeling because it took me two days to get up on a board. I was I was on a board that was you know almost a foot shorter than me. The you know little fast three fin board, and I'm trying to get up on these you know small waves off of Coronado. Three days, three days. There's not enough board to lift. I was I was in good shape, but uh, still too big for the board. Mm-hmm. Um, but boy, when I finally got on, oh, magic. It's just it magic. And then you got to go again. You're like, I got to go again. You know, you swim back out there and just keep going. I mean, hours and hours. I remember my chest was uh, just tore up from, you know, the sand and the wax and, and <laughs> the uh, fiberglass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I had surfer nipples, you know. Oh, just, yeah. <laughs> I did not. Yeah. I wore a yeah. rash guard in clothes. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, it was horrible. I had no idea that that was happening. And just like, ow, you know, you put on a t-shirt and it hurts. Mm, the mm-hmm, sand, mm-hmm. it just wore it off. Oh, it's the worst. Uh, anyway, I, I haven't surfed in years. I mean, I've done a lot of stand-up paddling and such, but I, I really want to go to a place like Costa Rica with, you know, just mm-hmm. a nice open break that go, you know, three feet. It's not going to kill anybody. And yeah. uh, you can get this to is very private. It's right by a national park. It's hard to get to. It's a 30 minute up and down the hills hike to the surf shack. Mm. And then it's over a lot of and the, it's very shell shelly beaches. So um, the other part of the training I do is I toughen up my feet. I, I usually go barefoot all the time, but I'll walk over. Um, my backyard has uh, pecan trees. So I will oh, walk and yeah. crush pecan shells because um, they're like shells. Like it really oh, helps. My mom has feet. them in her backyard. She's mm-hmm. she's in Las Cruces. Yeah. Those are sharp. Ouch. They are sharp. 
yeah, when I would train at this other gym, um, I would go outside on the porch. It was just in the little strip center. And I would, uh, we do something called, um, offset carries where you're carrying a kettlebell on one side. And part of what your core is doing is it's riding you, it's keeping you upright. So it's activating um, part of your core. It's stabilizing you. It's really great for surfing. And so I was out there doing these walks and they, you know, someone stuck their head out and they're like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm training. And they're like, you can train in here. There's air conditioning. I said, I'm training my feet because out there they had exposed aggregate, uh, Mm Uh, instead of just, you know, smooth concrete. And then right. I was like, I get a two for one. <laughs> I'm walking on this with pressure because this is what it feels like when you're picking up and carrying a surfboard in from the water and you're walking all, all over those shells. Oh, it's pretty, pretty gnarly, huh? Yeah, well. I surfed in Hawaii um, again for modeling. And um, I learned a lot about lava and the rocks and it was not, it was a very painful lesson. And I was very grateful to have some sweet friends who gave me ice packs for my feet. And uh, the next day I had to leave. And so I was checking in at the airport and the woman noticed how poorly I was walking. She said, would you, would you like a wheelchair? I was like, oh no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. She's like, it's a really long walk to the concourse, down the concourse to get to your plane. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I was, I was limping pretty badly. Maui? Uh, Honolulu. Um, I'm going to say this for everyone who's a surfer, North Shore, but not North Shore. (laughs) There's a teeny tiny, almost like a kid's pool version of the waves close to North Shore. And um, everybody was there. Every every surfer that was a or every tourist that wanted to be a surfer was there. So it was a high traffic area. And I got trapped over on some uh, a reef. And it was pushing me into the reef. And um, I couldn't get off the reef. And I was trying not to tear up the rental surfboard and I'd been told about sea urchins and yeah, it was, it was kind of a mess, but I got out of it. I'm very proud. (laughs) And again, it's because I trained, I was strong enough to pick up a big giant surfboard over my head and, and cast it a weight from me into the wave. So it would get carried up to the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. Ocean is not forgiving. The ocean. I will, I tell people, cause they're like, Oh, I'm going to wear this necklace in the water. And I'll say, only wear into the ocean what you are willing to give to the ocean. That's so real. I don't, I don't wear anything that I'm not willing to donate, and it gets recycled. Mm-hmm. Surf naked. That's why that was a big thing. <laughs> I can't do that. I'm so fair skinned. I, I look more like, um, I look like a Teletubby. So I'm in like almost like a onesie. So I have um, these surf leggings. So I modeled for a friend of mine who developed a surfwear company that has clothing Mm. for surfers, for women of all sizes, not just the teeny tiny little people, the bigger people like me. And so I have um, leggings and a rash guard that are UPF 50, and it's made out of fibers that are from recycled plastic out of the ocean. So full circle. Yeah. Nice. Nice. But I'm completely covered other than my face and my braids and yeah. I wonder what the breaks are like on those plastic islands. You know, what kind of breaks they have on those? (laughs) I guess there's whole islands out there. There's just plastic. uh, Well, my friend was inspired to start this company, which is called 126 West, because she went to um, Ubud. She was there um, and she couldn't surf. She, she was, she was all in the, uh, in that area, different places. And she, in Bali, in Bali, and she couldn't surf because for three days, the island of plastic trash was so huge that people couldn't go to the beach. Wow. 
And so she was like, we got to do something about this. Yeah. And I know there's lots of other people out there that are, that have projects like that, where they're reclaiming the plastic and they're turning into something productive and they're educating people about it. Yeah. Yeah. It, I don't want to get into that, you know, well, maybe a little bit. It's, I just feel like there should be a product life consideration in what a product costs and that that cost should be renumerated at the back end for repurposing recycling in other words if i make a big chunk of plastic toy that's life expectancy say nine years Mm -hmm. in terms of use before it gets all crusty and nobody wants to play with it anymore then it goes to the dump and it's there for ever essentially wherever they dump stuff or it gets burned, whatever. But um, it seems to me that if you're making stuff that is going to impact the rest of, of the system, because it is all a system. So it's just neglecting our trash is, is I think a, a shortcoming of capitalism that if we make something that creates trash, then we have some responsibility to that trash even though yes. we've sold it to the consumer at, if we know that it has a nine year life, then at that nine years, our responsibility kicks in. Right. But that's socialism. You damn socialist ideas. <laughs> well, I do think there are some other com- countries out there that have taken that into consideration. And I do think there's also businesses here in the US or businesses all over the world that sell products to the US that are taking that into consideration. They are much more mindful about their packaging, that their packaging breaks down more easily, even if it's just a wrapper on cosmetics. Um, But as you were saying that, I was thinking, yeah, God's got it right. Like my dog just died last week and my last act of kindness is in service to the earth and in service to the animal's body, not, mm-hmm. not her spirit, her spirit's with me. And so I carry the body to its final resting place and it mm-hmm. helps me internalize that she is gone. And I lay the body down and say a prayer over the body and thank the body, thank mm-hmm. the container. But again, God's got it right. That thing's going to break down. And the very next morning it was freezing cold rain. And there was a little thought in my head, like, Oh no, my dog's cold. And then I was like, Nope, that's an old fur coat. (laughs) That thing is getting broken down. It's getting rained on. It's providing food for other animals. It's It's going to coming life. Yeah. It's going back into where it started from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but I do think there's a greater consciousness around that circle of life in terms of products these days. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, we've got habits and we've got beliefs and ideas that, you know, are conflicting with all of that. And we have systems, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, just change yourself. Well, certain things are systemic that, that actually need to be addressed from the whole. And, Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're getting wiser as time goes on. And I, I hope, you know, I hope to just, you know, for our children's sake, we do things smarter. (laughs) I agree. Yeah. Oh, you have children? I have zero biological children. I am uh, happily a non-breeder. Oh, good. My uh, husband you know, has children overrated. and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So I am 
by marriage, a grandmother and a great grandmother. So my husband is great daddy and I am great Laura. Oh, how fun you get. And I have seven amazing little people that I get to play with and watch them grow. And they are, they're incredible. I love it. Parenthood is amazing. Um, it it's so much it's it's a blur you know and, and it looks it like just, a lot of fast track learning mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah you're dumb the whole time it, you don't <laughs> know what the hell you're doing you're just trying to be nice and trying to make sure everything's done and make sure that they have as many you know positive experiences and and get to chase their ideas as much as you can support those um but they're their own people, right? Like they are their own people and you're only really a guide mm-hmm. to kind of get them on the right path. And they're already working with, it's interesting when kids come, I I say when they come out of the womb, they're, they're, there's a whole lot of formed person there. There's a whole lot of just essence of being that, that will that you you don't change it's beyond your control yes you cannot change it mm-hmm. uh, all you can learn to do is is to work with that energy in conjunction with your energy so we're back to two stories coming together um so yeah it's it's uh it's fun mm-hmm. i'm glad it's over like the parenting part <laughs> um and I, you know, I'm glad my my daughters are, are good women, you know, mm. and uh, and I, I feel like they've got the tools to make it through okay, and 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 thrive if they actually both believe and that's, in themselves. And that's really to me, I I, and again, I'm not a parent, so I'm not saying this is how anyone should be, but as an observer, those that I am watching parent that I feel like are doing a great job by my standard, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. it looks a lot like coaching. It looks a lot like mentorship where you're saying to this little being, like you can go this way or you can go that way. And either way, Mm -hmm. I'm going to support you, but there's going to be consequences. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I screwed up a few things along the way, you know? No, no, that's not possible in parenting. No, it's, it's, (laughs) it's highly probable and, and and it happened. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just working through those and, and I don't know what you can do, you know, over the long haul is just, you know, love and, and, and be open to hearing the stories that, that, that they tell and hopefully opening up the stories that they need to tell. Mm. Um, and then yeah, I feel like parents are so it. hard on themselves. I feel like there's a whole area of self-love and self-forgiveness um specifically for those who have parented that uh a whole area of healing and again i'm not saying i'm not the one to do it and i'm not the one to facilitate it because i don't have mm-hmm. that lived experience but i definitely see and work with clients who are parents and that's part of what i hear is they have such harsh recrimination <laughs> of what they've done even though they were there was good intentions or they were doing their best and yeah. and so yeah just forgiving themselves they say the road to hell mm-hmm. is paved with good intentions mm-hmm. um and there is some truth in that you know like 
because they are there, they're individual people, truly. And so you can guide and you can direct, but inevitably when you're doing that, you're inserting yourself. And, you know, at, at some level, yes, you want civilized people. There's some basic things that, that I think if we really accentuated those and just basic good human behaviors, then I think we could raise better people. But I think we get these ideas about controlling these people, you know, and there's, you know, this, this idea of humans and dominion is, is big that we, you know, have dominion over each other, that we have dominion over nations that we have, you know, manifest destiny. There's, um, Power versus force. That's what I was talking to my husband about this morning. Power yeah. versus force. Mm -hmm. A lot of the suffering that comes along in this world is because people are looking for power, but they use force. And again, I think sometimes it's just a lack of awareness that there's a different way to yield a great outcome. Um, and we've got a lot of history with um, top-down type approaches with using logic and reason over listening to intuition. Um, we are used to forcing a lot of things to happen, including childbirth. <laughs> there's a lot of force, forced ideas around that, around there's a lot of forced ideas around how to heal a person um, mm -hmm. within the medical community, as well as within the holistic community. There's a, there's a lot of that. Um, but. Well, it's, it's, it's easier than, than having the conversation. Yes, I to, agree. You know, I've, I've watched, <laughs> I've watched organizations that, um, work in the same organization, but I watched it work in two different ways. Uh, there was this one way when it was young and organic where, all parties to a decision were brought on board and conversations were had sometimes maybe too long, but there were conversations and everybody's ideas were considered. And then new sheriff in town, new top level. And then what happens is change, change comes about as dictate. In other words, it's it's done in the small room with three key players or four. They put the whole thing together and present. And this is. This so is how take, we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you take an organization where people were used to having input into the design, mm -hmm, into the design and development of any initiative and just put them out and then say this is it and then we're open for conversations now and they're like well it's too late isn't it all right yeah you've already decided we're going to have plastic that won't break down right like and it's already in production but like what, how can we talk about this so my question to you is why do you think that happens what's going on with those three people or that one person who has shifted things what do you think is going on underneath? Control. It's it's a desire to 
have your idea go out the door without having to negotiate any other considerations in the idea. So it's about controlling the whole thing. Sure. It's and also about reducing the process because, you know, if you're into control, you these processes can get tedious, especially if you already know all the answers. Um, so it's about reducing the amount of time in process and just streamlining. It's, mm -hmm. it's faster to make dictates. Yeah, that's an upside. But what do you think is going on in the internal world of the person who is dictating? Well, I think it's it's essentially a, a fear of losing control. If I allow other ideas to come in, then I, I will lose my power because that's what my power is, is this presentation, this story. Mm. I don't know. I have a slightly different take, but okay, okay. I go with that. Well, what's your take? I say that those that are in control or are in dictate are they are operating out of fear but the fear is based on an unmet emotional need hmm. and so you may be familiar with these they were presented by tony robbins there's six of them and so one of them might be significance um you know like leaving a legacy uh, but i believe that that person that's operating in that way may be afraid that if someone else if they go collaborative if someone else has a great idea then what are what what good are they mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this is simplifying things a lot but what i found in the work that i do with the clients that i do is it always seems like at some point in the in the the conversations we come back to unworthiness we come back to the heart we come back to the emotion of not feeling good enough and so the way that we feel good enough is we control and we say, this is the best idea. And I'm the smartest one in the room because I've told all the rest of you, you can't talk. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's that's right. And that's essentially what they've done. They say, you can't talk. They would open up the room for comment, but not really appreciating the opinions mm -hmm. that came in. And then when the product does well, who gets all the kudos? The person that has the emotional need it's finally getting met. I'm significant. I'm important. It was my mm -hmm. idea. I'm running the company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a place, I guess, in between. Um, I guess it's just about keeping everybody informed all along the lines. But, you know, I have seen the collaborative approach get mired up in, you know, say you get two or three of those people who are all kind of operating on that same control idea and then you're not getting anything done so. seeing also over collaboration where we're trying to get everyone on board and everyone happy and everyone mm -hmm. producing ideas and when i think of collaboration i don't think of everyone having exactly the same amount of time on the mic so to speak but rather everyone is putting something in the pot yeah so yeah, stew takes all kinds of flavors to make it right. Mm -hmm. And you know, roles and responsibilities, um, I, I believe, should be na a natural fit. You know, best managers 
already know their people. They, a job comes along. They're like, that's for so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Um, now the thing is, is if there's too much of something and you've got somebody who's really good at it, some of those times, those people get a little overburdened because they're True. the only one that's really good at data entry or whatever real accurate, you know, and they get loaded up. Then they need to set boundaries <laughs> with their mm-hmm. boss and they need to suggest that maybe someone else get cross-trained. So what are ways of people to set boundaries? And um, what are some of the other tools that you use when it comes to setting brown boundaries? I think pre-framing things is really important, especially when you're going to have a conversation where you are speaking to what the two of you want the outcome to be, or also speaking your intention. Because when you walk into conversations, whether you're trying to decide on the work hours or you're trying to, you know, have a difficult conversation with a friendship is stating your intention and making sure it is true for you. Um, Mm -hmm. because that's, what's going to come across. And then also asking them, because just like any negotiation, if, if you're coming to the table to just beat the other person and not give them any more money, then Mm -hmm. it's not really a negotiation anymore. Again, it's that that force thing. So I think pre-framing things with your intention of where you're headed or where you want to go with the conversation. Um, I think asking questions for clarification. So if someone says, I just like this, this discussion, mm-hmm. you know, today you said I do long form. And I said, I don't know what that is. Please tell right, me. Right. And you said, it's going to be longer. And I was like, and I had to check in, like, do I, does this resonate with me? Do I want to spend two hours in conversation with someone? Mm-hmm. Yes. I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Now, if I didn't know what that was and I didn't get clarification and we got on a podcast in my mind, my definition of a podcast is an hour. So at the 55 minute mark, I'd start getting anxious at the 15 minute after the hour mark, I'd be angry with you. Mm-hmm. But actually, why why would I be angry with you? I would really be angry with myself. You made, <laughs> because you I made didn't, an agreement you didn't Because really I made an agreement understand. that I didn't read all the fine print or I didn't, you know, I didn't put in the the um the fine print that I wanted. So I think asking questions for clarity around what people mean when there is communication, I think that helps with the boundary setting. Um the other thing I try really hard to do, and of course, I'm not going to be 100% at it, is I try my very best to keep my word. And if I have to break my word, I make sure to communicate early enough to the other person, mm-hmm. not only with an apology for, for not keeping the agreement, mm-hmm. but also with enough time for them to rededicate that time. So um, for example, if today I was unwell, when I woke up at 7am, I would have wanted to communicate with you right then that I couldn't keep this, you know, keep this commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think keeping your word is, to me, it's, it's really important. When, when people don't keep their word to me, I'm like, mm, sketchy, can't count mm-hmm. on them, not dependable, not sure what they're going to do. But I think, like I said, keeping, sometimes you do have to break your word. You do have to break agreements, no, but it's so hard. being very I, honest when you do that. If I have to, oh my God. Mm-hmm. It's I know, so it's hard. hard. It's hard right? for me. Oh my but gosh. when I do, I always check in. It's usually because I'm honoring my health, my household, my mm-hmm. husband. Yeah. Um, I had to not keep keep a, a timetable on clubhouse because I had a dog that had a car accident and I had to take her to the vet. Like I have to take care of my, my family, so to speak. Um, I think also for boundaries is 
boundaries change, people change, so boundaries change. So checking back in on previous agreements. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you get to know someone and you're, you always go to coffee with them and the time always expands, it always expands. And you're like, oh, we sit there for an hour and a half, but Mm -hmm. checking in with them again from time to time and saying, you know, we're going to go to coffee. Um, Do you still have an hour and a half or, and then that way you're not astounded when they say, I've got to go pick up my kids, but, but checking to make sure that the, the boundary that you set or the agreement that you set, because that to me is what a, a boundary is, is that the agreement that you set from a long time ago is still valid. Mm. So kind of rechecking on the mm-hmm. boundaries and clarifying those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so what is I think Reiki? F- oh, Reiki. <laughs> a quick abrupt shift. Let's move on to Reiki. <laughs> um, Wait, Reiki. you were going to finish up on the boundaries and clarifying though. You, you had something there before I interjected. I think with boundaries, what people are afraid of, and I know I was afraid of when I set them, is that you feel like if you create a boundary, you are setting up a wall against people mm. and that they won't be able to approach you. And the the word picture that I have for myself um, is when you put a boundary around your property, you get to choose what kind of boundary that is. Mm-hmm. Some people, they put stakes in the ground. You know, and again, maybe they're out in pasture land and they need, they need for everyone's cattle to be able to cross over and graze, mm-hmm. but they have to have a verbal agreement with their neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. Some people, um, they live in a dangerous neighborhood and they've got things in their backyard they need to protect, like the back door to their home. So they have to put up a brick wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you've had boundaries broken before, you're going to put up brick walls with people. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing is, is you can adjust the boundary. So you can try out a, a wooden fence. You can try out, which lets a little airflow in. You can try out a chain link fence. Um, you can adjust that boundary as the trust builds. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I found too. When I when I meet people, I don't always have brick walls up, but I have I have a boundary. And then as they get closer to it, I'm assessing. Let me think through my interaction with them. What is my level of trust? Okay. I trust them a lot. Okay. Then come over here through the chain link. You know, they can come around the the side. I'm going to give them a key to the gate. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you've had a lot of um, trust issues, you know, or you meet someone with trust issues, they're going to have brick walls. They're going to have like, there's certain people. uh, I've got a brick wall for them. I've Mm -hmm. got a moat. There's alligators in it. Yeah. <laughs> like the drawbridge is up. There's and probably make it past that. There's a shotgun. <laughs> All of the above. Yeah. And different people, obviously. You you have yeah. different boundaries with. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and the hard thing that I found is, you know, if you've let boundaries slip and then you're like when you go to reset that can be really challenging especially the people that are close to you it's unfair so the, the communication needs to be clear as to why and i wasn't good at that so i really screwed things up <laughs> i think i think if you're resetting boundaries that vulnerability mm-hmm. can be your superpower of just calling out the elephant in the room when you sit down with the person and say look I've been really shitty about this. I've not been a good friend. I've not been keeping my word to you. I've not been showing up on time. Um, I've let things slip and I'm ready to change that. Mm-hmm. I would like to try something new. Mm-hmm. And this is my intention. And then you're you're rewriting that agreement with them and you're trying to see where they're on board mm-hmm. and working with that. Um, and again, by 
showing that vulnerability of, of being a human and messing up, I think for some people that kind of sets them off guard, they're kind of startled, but I also think it has the ability to open them up to be willing to try again. Mm-hmm. And it clears the air. It clears the air of all the things that everybody knows, but we didn't talk about. Right. And that's part of what makes things feel icky and sticky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of quiet time. <laughs> We've had a lot of that. Um, so Reiki, what is it? <laughs> what is Reiki? It's all woo woo and weird. And um, Reiki is an ancient form of energy healing. It was developed by uh, a Japanese man. And it has been handed down as a practice from teacher to student. It's kind of like, it's a, um, it, if you will, it's almost like an oral tradition. So it's taught to each person and there is a attunement process, which I would compare it to being ordained in a church. So again, you are being given something, there's symbols, you're being given something and a practice that is very sacred and has been handed down time after time, and you are being trusted with it. And as a result, um, through going through a particular practice of using those symbols, you are calling in Reiki, which stands for life force energy, or healing energy. And you are acting as a channel for that energy. And The way I describe it to clients who are interested in it is I say it's a light touch, hands-on modality. And I said, and the benefits that you might notice afterwards would be as if you had a massage. So you Mm -hmm. may feel more relaxed. You may feel more at peace. And the energy itself is a divine, intelligent life force. So I have my clients come in. They usually have something they're working on. It could be they have a physical pain. It could be they have something going on mentally that they're struggling with. They could have something, you know, emotional hurt. They could have something spiritually that they're trying to figure out. And Reiki is wise. It knows where to go. It knows how to help them. And so Mm -hmm. what I do is ask them to set an intention. And then I hold that intention for them in my heart. And then I act as a channel, which means I get out of the way. (laughs) I'm not healing them. The, The life force is coming through me. And as I lay my hands on them, that energy is coming through into their body and they are receiving it. And then their body and mind and spirit's intelligence takes it and works with it. So if someone comes in and says, my knees really ache, great. I hold the intention that we can work on your knees today. And when the life force comes in to my hands and through them, it may be like, well, the reason her knees are working is actually psycho-spiritual. So we're going to go in her mind and work on something, or it's actually because she was grieving this loss and it has to do with her heart and her emotional complex. And it may work on a whole different layer of the human body. There's a lot of different um, energy bodies in a human. And so Reiki may go and work on that and clean things up. And then presto, the knees may not hurt so much. So it's not for me to know um, how to do that. And as my practice has developed, um, I got uh, ordained, not ordained, attuned (laughs) back in May of last year. uh, And the practice, what I love about it is it's silent. And so for an hour, you have someone completely and totally dedicated to your health and healing. Mm. All of their 
all of the energy that is passing through them is for you. You're in a place of absolute peace. Nobody wants anything from you. You don't have to answer your phone. There's no questions. You don't have to move your body. You lay there and receive. And I can't think of hardly anything else other than maybe getting a massage where you have people that are just so, someone that's so dedicated to that. And uh, during that process now, what I'm finding is my gifts of clairvoyance and claircognizance and clairsentience are coming online. So I mm. tend to get messages and pictures that drop in for my clients. And so through the process, I'm checking in to find out is this something for them that I'm to tell them or not? And so all of it's very permission basis. So if I get something and I'm like, oh, that's a really beautiful message. Do I tell them that? If I get a no, then I bring that energy through my hands. So for example, I had a client that um, I heard he really needs to know how much his mother loves him and how valuable he's been to her. And so I was like, is this something I tell him? And I heard a no, or I felt a no. And so instead in my hands, I would bring that message and say, as if I was saying it to him, you are so valued. You are so important. You've done such great efforts for your mother. You've been in service to her. You are so loved by her. And so mm -hmm. again, sending that word picture energy alongside mm -hmm. Reiki into the human body. So it's a meditative me, state where you become a channel breathing into the universe and mm -hmm. utilizing that to focus upon another person. Mm -hmm. um, and you say you get out of the way. So you just stay to breath and the intention, is that the idea throughout the whole process? Yeah. I get different um, signals now of where I'm supposed to apply the energy. So there's different hand positions. Um, you start at a certain place and you move along the body. And again, you check with your client beforehand, you know, do you like let light touch? You don't have to even touch them. You can hover your hands. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if they say my elbow's really hurting and if you're, the elbow is not a place you usually put hands, you can put hands there. And then sometimes I'm guided to put my hands in certain places. And generally we're talking about, you know, all non-sexual areas. So I've never been guided to put my hands on anybody's breasts, for example. Um, if I, if I'm getting a message, something that has to do I with have, like, it lungs. started when I was 14. <laughs> that was, I, I was guided all. I didn't even all, know you knew how to do Reiki. <laughs> from, the, from the age of 14 on, I was guided to put my hands on breasts and then told not to. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very, I feel honestly very honored that I have a human being that is laying on their back. They stay on their back the whole time for my sessions. They don't move that here they are in the most vulnerable position possible. They are yeah. on their back, fully exposed, and they are trusting me with, with what I'm going to do. And so I, I try very hard to make sure that when I put my hands on them, they're very still and, and that like. I can't, I can't even imagine what if I was told, just put your hands on her breast. I'd be like, no, that's weird. I'm not doing that. Yeah. Um, I, I love it because I, I really feel of service and I have definitely had, um, I had my palm chakras activate and I was learning how to play around with energy and send energy. But when I was doing that, I was using my own. And mm. I was depleting it. So this is kind of like, I'm a fire hose yeah. <laughs> and I'm sending most of the water to them. 
but the insides of me is being bathed in Reiki. And so when I come away from clients, I am never depleted. I am always energized. I am always grateful. I am more at peace. And so I, I think it's a beautiful practice to be able to share it with somebody. And like I said, the more my gifts come along, I realize that I can be in service further if they're available for those messages. I, I don't expect that everyone is. And so I, again, tell them I'm the mailman. I have some mail for you today. Would you like to receive it? <laughs> I have a message for you. And then it's up to them to determine, is this junk mail or real mail? Because if I get a picture, I'm like, I saw a sailboat on your left hip, you know, and we're here we are in West Texas and it's super dry and cactus is growing. And I'm like, why in the world would I see this person in a sailboat? There's no sailing here, you know, but it means something to them. And again, mm -hmm. it's their takeaway. It's, it's them looking at a piece of art and going, that's the most amazing thing, or that looks like a load of crap. Um, it's for them to take home and think about, or for them to understand it's a, it's a connection between them and source energy. Um, I don't have to understand it. Seems like there's a lot of trust. Yeah. In something that uh, that's kind of, you know, it, there's nothing tangible here except for the people's experience and your experience uh, walking away. And yet there is, in the end, there's an energy transfer. There's a, mm -hmm. you know, if we, if we look at the world in only material terms, then, then yeah, there's nothing happening here. But so how did you get to trusting that it was actually happening with you through you? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I guess because of the feedback that I get from my body and also the feelings that I get when I have delivered it. So it, it feels true. It feels true to me. Mm -hmm. And, and again, I create a lot of word pictures and stories about other things that we can't see, but we absolutely trust. I'm trusting in the Wi-Fi right now, Gary, that it's mm -hmm. going to hold so we can do this. Right, I can't see right. it. I can't explain to you how it even works. Mm -hmm. I trust in gravity again. Don't see it. Can't explain how it works. I trust in love. Mm -hmm. can't tell you how that works. <laughs> yeah, me neither. So um, the people that tend to come to me are usually a little more energy sensitive. And so um, they get it. And I don't expect everybody to get it there. And every person's experience is very different. So some people may come away from it. Like she didn't do anything. She just walked around my body for an hour. <laughs> she just put mm -hmm. her hands on my knees um, and they may or may not feel a benefit immediately. It, it does tend to work over time. Um, but for me, I guess the trust was prior to getting trained and then attuned is I was receiving imagery when I would meditate of people that I cared for. And I would say, I'll pray for you, or I'll, I love you. I'll send you love. And I would get pictures and I would see the energy and it would show up as colors and it'd show up as really pretty visions. And I just had like a little movie and I felt like I was in a kid on the front row with my popcorn, just watching. Mm -hmm. And, but it was, it was coming to me and through me in its own way. And so, um, and then I would call them and say, you know, this is what happened. And they're like, Oh, that's interesting. I really felt good around that time. Or I would get some feedback, um, most specifically, I was doing it with a, a monitor on from HeartMath. So oh, yeah, HeartMath I've, Institute. I've I've studied 
uh, I've read the books from heart math. I'm fascinated by anything related to the heart. And so I was using a monitor for heart math. And the goal of the heart math monitor for your meditation is that you move into what's called coherence. Brain and heart are speaking back and forth to each other. And what's how that's represented on the monitor, which is on your phone, like a little app on your phone, is these real pretty little rolling hills of a heartbeat. So instead of a little jaggedy thing, it moves into a real nice rolling hill pro pattern. And uh, my best friend fell and hurt her um, her shoulder really, really badly. And she uh, has horses to take care of and animals to take care of. Her husband's a little incapacitated. And so she was just grieved that she couldn't do all the things she was going to do. And so I was wearing the heart math monitor and I thought, I'm going to play around them with this energy thing. And again, this is before Reiki. And I was like, I'm going to see if I can send something to her. So I was doing that. And when I got done and looked at the wave patterns, I had data. I had mm. scientific proof that something had changed in my body and in my mind mm. because the wave patterns weren't these small rolling hills. The amplitude had tripled mm. mm -hmm. and it had sustained. So part of the app itself is you're trying to get in the green zone. There's three zones. Uh, the red zone shows that you're in kind of executive function. You're in a different brainwave pattern. B is means, again, you're almost there. And then green, if you're in the green zone, that basically means you're in the place where you can produce coherence. Is that what a theta or delta wave? Um, it would be, I believe it would be theta. Yeah, I would believe it'd be theta. And so that's where you're heading towards is theta. Mm -hmm. And so I have, I still have it on my app. That was the first day that I could actually see that whatever was going on in my body and mind with my intention and trying to gather up energy from the universe and from myself to send to my friend and the pictures I saw, it put me in a particular state and I have data to show that it was doing something. Wow. And then again, she had, and of course she's doing other things. So I, I always remember I'm one part of the system. <laughs> she's going to be taking, you know, some extra supplements in her shake, or she's going to go see her chiropractor. But um, through all of that, she did heal pretty quickly. And, and I do ask for feedback when I was first starting Reiki, I would ask for feedback from people that I knew and trusted when I was practicing on them. You know, mm -hmm. what did you feel? What did you experience? And then, like I said, my body gives me signals that feel like truth. Mm -hmm. So, um, I put, they say their knees hurt. I put my hands on their knees and I would start to pull my hands away thinking it was time for me to move. And I would feel almost like, like the, like their, like their knees were thirsty. Their knees would feel like they were pulling my hands down. Mm. And then as I left them there, I started checking in and asking basically myself and their self in an energetic way. And I'd say, you know, can I, do I need to stay here? And if I needed to stay here, my heart would beat faster. Mm. And so as long as my heart was beating pretty rapidly, I would know I was in the right place. And then when my heart would get to a super calm state, then I'd know, okay, check, we can move on. Nice. So, yeah. And it's, it's still a process. I'm still learning how to do it differently, do it better. There's probably going to be more signals that come in. Um, but yeah, it, it is a big trust process that whatever I'm doing is benevolent and productive for the person, not only on my side, but on theirs. But I tend to have a pretty high state of trust for things like this.
it would take it you know is but you know it's interesting there's there seems to be even you know through this uh there's a psychedelic movement and people are finding the people on this ayahuasca which i've never done they're seeing the same creatures like entities life forms and and people are seeing them ubiquitously throughout the experience although they're not the same people right that and so that speaks to some energies you know maybe the leprechauns were real heck i don't even know anymore <laughs> that's, uh, that's happened that's actually happened to me not the ayahuasca mother ayahuasca has not called me um if she calls me i'm probably gonna you know send her to voicemail like i'm not interested in that experience but I've had a meditative experience where I was seeing something and I was seeing it in color and mm. I described it after our group meditation, we were being in a guided meditation and my girlfriend who I'm friends with was, mm -hmm. she purposely got her mat and came and laid down next to me and she saw what I saw, but in black and white. Oh, wow. So I do Just... believe in collective consciousness. I do believe in Akashic records. I do believe in, I call it the ultimate cloud computing. Like all the data is up there. And if we all connected to the same file at the same time, then we would see similar things. And Akashic records. is. We already do it. We already do it in this version. Like mm. what is it to go and sit and watch a movie? We're all yeah. watching a vision that someone else had. That's not really real. Mm -hmm. We're all together pretending it's real for a little while. That's what it takes. Little, uh, you know, uh, what do they call that? Suspension of disbelief. Mm -hmm. And you know, it does. It allows for for more to open up. And that's um, and that's part of Reiki. It's just like your doctor giving you a pill. It's just like someone giving you a massage. It's just like you putting on an ointment. You have to have some level of belief that it mm -hmm. can help you because your intention is acts as the receiver. So mm -hmm. if you have no belief, you're shutting off any possible benefit. Yeah. And I've read a lot of studies on the placebo effect. So even if someone came in and they're like, Reiki's going to heal me, I'm going to walk again, even though I'm crippled, their belief, it is absolutely possible that Reiki can heal them if their belief is that high. Because again, it goes back to, as you know, with Candace, vibration and frequency. Yeah, yeah. And I was listening to Dwayne Dyer and he says, you know, doubt, doubt's the killer. Doubt, doubt is resistant. Yeah, mm -hmm. doubt is doubt and, and fear and self-doubt are just the two things that'll get in the way of any direction that we're headed in our lives that, you know, when we want to make a, you know better of ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, let's see. I do need, I, let's get all your info here. Okay. So, yeah. And, you know, do you want me to talk about what I do or what I'm doing yeah, or where I'm yeah, going? Like, okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what do you want? What do you want people to know and how do they get in touch with you? And, okay, cool. And, yeah. So, I am a spiritual life coach and I am a healer and I offer several different modes of healing that are at a distance. So, I really can work with anyone in the world, which I find to be quite thrilling. Uh, this yeah. is a great age to be alive. And I help people release doubt and fear, mm -hmm. limiting beliefs at a subconscious level. Uh, and I can help with um, them transforming and releasing things. Thus, we would call that healing. Mm -hmm. My current vision is for my nonprofit, which is called Hearts of Healing Center. And I am in the process of gearing myself up for a big fundraise thing because I would like to purchase this amazing equipment, which replicates the effects of Reiki, 
but with technology. And so it puts a healing energy in a room and multiple people can be in that room in zero gravity chairs, meditating and chilling out. It's right. non-invasive. And again, the body, the, the, the energy, the power that made the body heals the body. So this energy prompts the body to remember to know how to heal itself. And the, there's miracles happening all over with this. It's It's gone gangbusters. It's going all over the world. I experienced it in, in Vegas and I've had it on my mind ever since. So mm. I'm going to bring that physically to San Angelo, my hometown, mm -hmm. and I'm going to figure out some way to transmit it <laughs> virtually as well. I know that's the next step that's coming. Um, so if people are interested in individual sessions of healing, if they're interested in free, uh, I've got a lot of free online offerings around the topics of Reiki, uh, Oracle cards, manifestation, um, new moon stuff. Um, I have a, a lovely community of women that I'm cultivating as well as a lo lovely community of healers that I'm cultivating. And so all of that is swirling together to create this, um, this healing movement uh, that I feel like is necessary for the next evolution of humanity. And I'm here for it. And I want to play my part, whatever that may be. So if people would like to reach me, if they are interested in that, they can reach out and find me on many platforms. The best one to find me is on Instagram. And the Instagram handle is hearts of healing center. My website's undergoing some reorganization, but they're welcome to find me there. Hearts, plural, of healingcenter.org. You can find me by the same name on Facebook, uh, on Clubhouse. I'm Laura Wall. Uh, and I also host a podcast called You. Uh, the Guru is You. See, <laughs> what a podcaster I am. The you. Guru is You. Because I believe in people um, having the autonomy and the wisdom to know when there's something wrong and to know what's right for their body and their mind and spirit to heal and to pursue that path. So I interview people, real stories of healing, and they're fascinating to me because there's no one way and there's no right way to heal. Right. There isn't. So, and then that's on all the podcast platforms, all the, all, all the places, all the things. Excellent. Well, and if you're old all, school, you can just that. email me. <laughs> send me all that and I'll put that in. The, and when I publish sure. it, it'll be all there. Thank you so much, Laura. Uh, this you're has welcome. been a great pleasure. Thank you for asking me to do this. Um, I just sign out with this one, folks. Love yourself. Love your others. Garland Pepper out. There we did it. <gasps> that was awesome. Well, I'm with you, man. High five. I've been uh, remiss. I've been on the bench resting and recovering from last year. And I just recorded my first episode Wednesday and my second nice. episode Wednesday. And you're right. It feels, it feels really good to do it, it and have good, a conversation. Right? Yeah. 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 Well, like this it. was a fun one. We, you know, I tend to bounce around a little bit, but I think I we loved did, it. I think we did a good job. I think it's, we covered fun. all the highlights, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm a, a recovered uh, Al-Anon or I'm the Al-Anon of a recovered alcoholic. I've, I'm an Austinite. I'm a weirdo. I'm a surfer. I'm a healer. <laughs> I've got a big vision. Yeah. Um, I've learned how to set boundaries from bullies. Yeah. All the things. Yeah. That, that was an interesting take there. The yeah. I, from bullies. The book that I published uh, that in, I was not pleased 
with the person who is the facilitator, the project manager on it, mainly because she broke her word bully? all the time. No, she's, uh, she's got narcissistic tendencies. And so she would, um, if I called her on something, she would like, you know, act like the victim or whatever. So right. it's not a plus. It was like, oh, this is interesting. So I'm, I don't, I never signed anything. So I'm going to take that chapter. I'm going to republish it somewhere. I'll probably put it in my book that I'm working on. Nice. Mm-hmm. If you ever need somebody to read your book, I can do it. But, <laughs> oh, you mean um, to read it? Oh, yeah. okay. audio voiceover. Yeah. yeah. I'm doing some of that. You know, um, <laughs> I'm actually writing another book that's for my husband and I, and I've been trying to figure out how to get the masculine narration in there because I'm telling his story too, mm-hmm. but I wanted some differentiation and he's not, he wouldn't want to record it. And he has a deep voice. Oh, keep that in mind thank you it's uh it's not easy to record so he's no. right not to want to commit no, to something and, like that i mean and you're i want to read it myself yeah i want to read it myself but again i know it's a labor of love i know it's going to be a lot of takes and a lot of water and throat spray and all that jazz yeah how long is it uh well it's not written completely yet because okay. part of it we're still living it um but i would say it's going to be medium <laughs> length mm-hmm. um 200 pages 100 pages 122 and a half pages i feel like under 200 because mm-hmm. i'm a i'm a i'm a wordy writer but i'm a vicious editor <laughs> yeah yeah they say write drunk and, edit sober <laughs> and then i'm hiring a professional editor to make sure every everything connects um it's the story of my husband and i and our the evolution of each of us in the marriage in paired archetypes so each chapter kind of is a snapshot of a different portion of our our relationship uh and it's through the eyes of each of the archetypes and how we've evolved and how we've you know changed each other and i've got wow. a lot of his stories yeah yeah sounds interesting it's, well thanks well, hey, I'm, I'm waiting for it to come out. My bladder calls. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate you. you. This is so fun. I'm so glad Yay, you asked. I'm so glad it's fun. Because yeah. I did one with Darren, but Darren's like, my mom's freaking out because I'm gay and she doesn't want the whole <laughs> world knowing about it. And I'm he's like, I just hold off for a bit so that she doesn't. So I was going to publish his on Monday, but I'm going to publish this on Monday. <gasps> oh, then, okay, cool. Yeah. Make sure to send me an email with all of your stuff so that uh, my copywriting is easier. And I am not attached to how you put all that together. So if you end up deleting some things out of it or having to shorten it, I trust your editing abilities. I don't and... edit. I run straight. Believe <laughs> all right. Okay. Yeah. Then I'll edit it really good. And then if you will send me, like if you have a graphic or a soundbite or anything that whatever you're promoting, if you want to send me that back, mm-hmm. I will also cross promote to, to help out the effort. Okay. Yeah. I'll send you the link to the podcast. Okay. And then um, quid pro quo, do you have a healing story that you would like to share on my podcast sometime? Think on it and you can let me know. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. All right. Just say that. I got to go to the bathroom so bad. Bye. Bye. (laughs)